Welcome to the Expat Cast. I'm your host, Nicole, and I am coming to you from my very nice, very cool cave. <laughs> so everywhere I've lived in Germany has been half underground. Every apartment. <laughs> Never such a full basement cave situation that there's no light. There's always a window, but you typically have to climb out the window to get to the ground level. And I bring that up because I don't know how it is where y'all are, but where we are in Freiburg, I left town last week and everyone was in coats. It was cold. It was rainy. I came back and it's like 80 degrees and sweaty and just no transitional spring beautiful time just straight from miserable cold rainy to super freaking hot. But I've learned two things through this experience. One, living in a cave is great. I can walk down the stairs and literally feel the humidity evaporate around me. But number two of things I've learned through it being super hot is uh, I work in a library with the public and the library is not air conditioned. And I've never worked in a not air conditioned library. <laughs> I'm learning very quickly that this turns out to mean it basically becomes a hot box of all possible human odors. They just get stuck in there. Uh, so that part's not great. But here I am in my cave, calm, cool, and collected for now. <laughs> I am so, so, so excited to bring you guys this episode. Our guest today, Mark, I'm not going to give you too much of an intro to who he is because we spend some of the episode kind of going through his, almost his resume, just because all of his work experience has brought him to such interesting places. So I'll let him explain it. But the short version is he studied Eastern Europe in college in the 80s, moved to Vienna in the late 80s, right when... All of a sudden, the Iron Curtain's falling and the entire culture and, and politics and just everything about that part of the world changed. And Mark was there to see it with just this perfect mixture of educational background and journalistic skills. So I honestly could have talked to him forever about what that era of his life was like. And we kind of did. I mean, not forever, but the good first part of the episode is going to be that. And then we get to talking about how that experience then led him to today living in Prague as a travel writer. So travelers out there who love to grab a Lonely Planet guide, you are going to love this. I know as a enthusiastic traveler, Lonely Planet is one of those companies that I've always really admired and it is so cool to get to speak to someone who is on the other side of things and, and hear what it's been like in his career. So I love everything about this. Mark also had the remarkable ability to say something that directly spoke to something that I've been mulling around in my head. He gave us five expat rules of life, so to say, and I gotta say some of those have been sticking with me since we recorded this episode a couple weeks ago, and I think they'll continue to stick with me ongoing. Um, really just great food for thought. Okay, I'm, I'm rambling. I'm, I'm such a fan of Mark and this episode. I hope you guys are too. Enjoy. So yeah, my name is Mark Baker. Uh, I grew up in Youngstown, Ohio. And I moved to first moved to Europe in 1986. I moved from New York, where I was going to school, to Vienna, and I was an expat in Vienna for five years. And then after that, I moved to Prague in the Czech Republic, and I've been in Prague now off and on since 1991. When you were in New York, 
before the move to Vienna, was this a goal of yours? Were you seeking out opportunities abroad or how did that first move happen? You know, I, I was always interested in, in international affairs. In fact, that's what I was doing in New York. I was doing a degree at Columbia University in the international affairs program. This was the mid 80s. So you have to go back a few decades in your mind. And uh, Europe was still split into the Western and Eastern parts, the Eastern Bloc. And I was really fascinated in life in Eastern Europe. And I did that specialization at Columbia. So uh, when I graduated in 1986, I got a job offer basically, luckily, you know, just by happenstance that was based in Vienna and that would allow me to work as a journalist covering the Eastern Bloc. So when that all changed, was that like for you on a personal level, like, well, crap, I studied that in college. Now it's not oh. a thing anymore. <laughs> you mean in 1989? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody else in Europe was celebrating and I was like looking at, you know, I was down in the dumps. I was in the doldrums, you know, all that money, all that hard work, reading all those uh, uh, things. But, you know, it's funny. People have asked me that before and I have thought about that. And there is a certain amount of regret in a sense. But what I studied at Columbia still helped me to prepare for what was going on in Eastern Europe in the early 90s after the revolution, because, you know, that transition in Eastern Europe happened over the course of the decade in the 90s. In fact, in some ways, it's still happening. So, yeah, it was a little bit of a waste of time and money. But at the same time, it helped me a lot, I think, in the 90s. OK. And so from what I understand, though, when you first moved, it was supposed to be more of a, a temporary gig. Uh, you know, every expat assignment is a temporary gig, isn't it? Uh, you know, I mean, very few people plan an entire lifetime outside their home country. It just doesn't happen. Most of the time you go for a job or a love interest or on a lark, and you usually do it when you're fairly young. So you have a couple of years to spare. So you think, well, I'll just see what it's like for a couple of years. And uh, after that, I'll move back or take it from there. But yeah, you're right. That that was my original plan. It was just to go to, to that job, basically. And when that job was over, when I got tired of it, I'd come back and work as a journalist in the United States. So let's talk about that change then. So what inspired you or what job offer was the one you couldn't refuse or, or whatever it was? What what happened that made me decide to stay longer? Yeah. How did that um, how did yeah. the two years expand itself? Well, I went over in 86 and guess what happened in 1989? You know, the Iron Curtain <laughs> fell in Europe. And basically everything that I had studied, you know, suddenly became super relevant and super irrelevant, you know, somehow at, at the same time, you know, I wasn't going to kind of devote whatever my, my studies to this, to this, you know, to this part of Europe and then not stick around to see what happens after everything changes. So in 1989, there really wasn't, for me at least, there really wasn't any option of coming home. And in fact, our office in Vienna, you know, I was working for a bureau, a division of the Economist Intelligence Unit. I was a journalist for a publication called Business Eastern Europe. I was a reporter there. I was covering Czechoslovakia and Eastern Germany for them. And then after the changes in 1989, they made me the managing editor of the publication. So I got a, a nice promotion and the opportunity to cover this crazily exciting region at this moment in history. I, I wasn't going to go home and leave this behind in Europe. So do you still do this work today? I worked for, for those guys until 1991. And then again, you have to kind of go back in time in your mind. Uh, in, in the 1980s, Vienna was about the closest you could get and stay in a Western European city to the Eastern Bloc. In fact, they you know, a lot of connections to Eastern Europe, though physically you're very close to the Eastern Bloc. But after 1989, suddenly the continent to the east became so much more exciting. 
everything was going on in Prague and Warsaw and Budapest. I mean, you had to be in those places if you really wanted to experience it. And strangely enough, Vienna felt very out of touch. Now Vienna makes it to the top of all these livability rankings and everybody admires their, their lifestyle, etc. But in 1990 and 1991, it started to feel a little bit boring, you know, mm. for me at least. And then you were off to Prague. So, um, I, you know, I told you I was working for the Economist Intelligence Unit and I kind of made a, you know, I, I they knew that I, I wanted to get deeper into the field, you know, that so they were pretty understanding when I told them that I wanted to leave. We worked out an arrangement that I could write um, a book, a kind of a small book for them. It was a business publication, so I had to choose a business uh, topic. So I wrote a book for how companies could organize themselves to penetrate the markets, the new markets in Eastern Europe, how to distribute product and whether they should um, set up their own companies or form joint ventures or continue to sell through intermediaries. You know, there was a lot of uh, logistical issues that Western corporations had to consider if they wanted to move into Eastern Europe. So so I made a deal with the Economist Intelligence Unit that I would publish, that I would author a book, and I got the chance to choose which city that I wanted to live in to write the book, and then ultimately decided to move to Prague. And I guess you like it because you stayed for a while, a long time. Again, this kind of gets into expat rule number two, is that somehow, you know, the reasons to stay just keep adding up in a way, or... Um, you never really decide to stay anywhere. You just kind of stay in a way. I don't know. I don't know about your situation, but I never. I've never really gone through that process of weighing whether I should go or whether I should stay. It's always been like the default assumption is just one more year, one yeah. more year. Yeah, and I think too because it is such a change moving abroad and and learning to live that life and live it well. It takes so long till you get to a point where you're comfortable in the language, in the culture, until your job right. situation's under control. By the time you've done that, all of a sudden, you've got a life there. Let me tell you exactly what happened then in the 1990s, because I had pretty good journalism experience. And when I went to Prague and finished that book, I was looking for a job. So, you know, a bunch of other Americans and other expats had come to Prague in the early 90s. And um, they set up a newspaper, the Prague Post, an English language newspaper. So I started there as their business editor for the first year. But I got my fill of Prague. I, I really enjoyed it. I, you know, I met so many great people there in those early years. But I started to get antsy like expats do. You know, <laughs> you can't stay outside your home country too long or you kind of lose some sort of economic viability. You know, somehow you need to demonstrate that you can perform in your home country in order to keep moving up, I guess. Anyway, I panicked. In 1994, I moved back to the United States and I left a good life behind. I left a girlfriend behind. I left so many things behind, but I thought if I'm not going, if I don't continue my career as a journalist in the U.S., I'll never make it as a journalist in the U.S. And when I came to the U.S., people were like, well, that economist thing looks pretty good, but that was in the 80s. What have you been doing lately? It's like, well, I was working for this little publication in Prague called the Prague Post. Oh, really? Um, never heard of it. You know, it took me a long time to find a job when I came back. I, I stayed at my parents. I was one of those returning expats, I guess, you know, landed in my parents' basement, uh, sent out resumes to every newspaper I could think of, magazines, worked every personal connection I could think of. And I finally got a job offer with Bloomberg in 1994 after searching desperately for a job for about six months. So how did you then, because today you're a travel writer, yeah? Right. How did yeah. this happen well, then? How did we get from this well, place in 1994 back at the parents' house to... <laughs> 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 well, 
I worked for Bloomberg, uh, as I told you, and um, let's see, I came in 86, moved back in 94. So I'd been in Europe the better part of eight years. And uh, I really started to miss Europe. I really missed my lifestyle there. I missed my friends. In the interim, while I was working at the Prague Post, uh, I had also started um, a bookstore and a coffee house in Prague at the time, and that business was still continuing. And, uh, you know, after a couple of years at Bloomberg, I decided just to come back to Prague. You know, it sounds ridiculous, but I had somehow lost that, I don't know, that kind of thing, that kind of drive that makes you work for 12 hours, you know, in the U.S., in New York, in the media environment in New York, you know, get up at seven in the morning, go home at seven in the evening, get up and do it again, do it again. You know, people, even people at Bloomberg were looking at me like, what are you doing here? You had a great life in Prague and you came back to to New York to do this. I mean, there was a certain amount of adjustment process when I came back to the States and I realized that I brought back a little bit of my expat life back to New York. It wasn't the same city that I had lived in as a student. I realized that um, I lost a little bit of that drive. I, I, I get you what you mean, of... though. Yeah, you, you sort of unlearn the hustle. You, you learn how to kind of calm the heck down. <laughs> I saw it in a way that I would not have seen it if I had never left the country before. I would have just assumed that that's natural, yeah. that people don't, don't get vacations, but they work 12 hours a day, you know, that they make just enough to pay their rent and no more. These are things that Americans just accept, take for granted. That's just the way it is. You know, there are a lot of great things to say about it, too. It's not all bad. But, um, you know, those aspects of returning to the U.S., particularly because I had to slot in at a pretty low level. I started off as just a desk editor at Bloomberg, not not some fantastic position. And it was expected of desk editors to show up when the office opened and to go home when the office closed and not to even think about leaving any time between then. That just struck me as totally abnormal and unnecessary. What year did you move back then? So I came back to Prague in 1997. So I was uh, essentially at Bloomberg for two years, two plus years, something like that. And then I came back to in 97. And then I got a job at Radio Free Europe, which is a US broadcaster, radio broadcaster that broadcasts to former communist countries and then many other countries in, in Asia, Central Asia and Eastern Europe. And I worked there for about uh, eight years until around 2006 or so. And then I decided to to leave the office environment and to see if I could make it on my own as a travel writer. And that's essentially what I did. Huh, it worked. <laughs> it worked. <laughs> well, you know, uh, travel writing and journalism are very are very similar jobs in a sense. They, they require very similar skills. You know, if you think about it, a travel writer is really a journalist who is, is trying to find new stories in, in new destinations but without the high stakes of, of a news thing, you know? So instead of, um, you know, whatever, uncovering a corruption or a crime or reporting on something, I'm uncovering a new restaurant or a hotel or a new attraction, something like that, you yeah. know? And those research skills come in handy. The The ability to talk to strangers uh, and get information out of people uh, comes in handy, yeah. I imagine. Yes, yes, very much so. When you're a journalist and you come into a foreign environment, you know, you really start looking for stories immediately, you know, because you realize that that your editor is going to be wanting you to file the next morning. You need to find something that's newsworthy. So immediately your brain switches on to, OK, what's happening around me? What could I turn into a story or what what really merits coverage as a story? And when you come into a destination as a travel writer, again, you know, your your instincts are on. You're looking around. OK, what's interesting here? What would I want to see if I were here as a tourist? What's new? It's very, very similar. 
This brings me then to our next topic, which is your immediate past. <laughs> the last, oh. what is it, month or so? You've yes, been uh-huh. yes. travel writing about the U.S. Yes. So how the heck did that happen? <laughs> it's crazy because travel writing is a little bit like journalism, you know, in many ways, but one specific way. And it's also a little bit about a little bit like being a, an actor in Hollywood in the sense that once you do a couple of projects, people can't see you outside that role at all. For my work as a travel writer, I write mostly on, you know, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Poland, Hungary, Slovenia, Romania, Bulgaria, basically Central and Eastern Europe. That's my turf. So a travel editor isn't necessarily going to see my body of work and say, we want to send you to South America or we want to send you to Indonesia. So I thought I would never break out of Central and Eastern Europe as a travel writer. You know, not that I would ever want to. I mean, I love that part of the world. But, you know, just to vary it a little bit, get some, you know, different experiences. Anyway, I, I have a blog, my own blog, and I've, I, I use it to write about little stories that don't make it into travel articles or into the guidebooks, more personal stories. And I was home the Christmas before last here in Ohio, and I wrote a little travel article about my hometown of Youngstown, which would never appear in any tourist book. You know, <laughs> no, it's just not, it's just not that kind of place. But I wrote it in a kind of, in a way, as if I were writing for a Lonely Planet Guide to Youngstown, just for fun. You know, people passed it around and got pretty good exposure here, particularly in, in Ohio. And my editor, uh, one of the Lonely Planet editors, I should say, in the United States and Tennessee, saw it online and asked me if I wouldn't want it to write for Lonely Planet in the United States, because obviously I know the Midwest and I could write about that, you know. So that's how it came. It came through the blog, basically. It's so funny because you're saying this and I'm like, that makes so much sense. But also in some way, it's unexpected, right? You don't expect to be turning the mirror in on yourself nearly almost, you know, and then looking at what's in your backyard. I guess in your case, you're in Ohio. You were writing about what Wisconsin and Minnesota. Those are yes. definitely different. There is a, a, a difference culturally, but and of course, in, in what to go see obviously. (laughs) But you know what I mean? It's like you you expect to be going to lands completely unknown and and really digging in. So what was it like to go back to somewhere where you knew the culture, you knew the the language and the accent and the traditions? And how was it trying to find these these tips from that perspective? Yeah, it's a great question. I kept, you know, really kept thinking about this same question as I was traveling around because like you said, normally when I go to Poland or Romania or Bulgaria, I mean, these are cultures that I really only know as an outsider. I mean, I feel like I know them pretty well, but uh, I don't have that, you know, all the knowledge in my fingertips that somebody who grew up in those countries would. And sometimes it's really funny if I tell somebody in Bucharest, for example, that I'm writing a book about Bucharest or something, they look at me like, what in God's name do you know about Bucharest? <laughs> But you have to think about travel writing because travel writing is not just about a destination. As a travel writer, you're actually a reader. You know, you're writing for the person who is reading that publication. So it's almost more important to know your reader than it is to know the place you're writing about, if you can follow me, Mm -hmm. you know, because you need to really be able to read the mind of the reader. Like, what would that person want to do here in this destination? What do they expect? you know, in terms of everything from the experience to is it going to be worth their time? And people who are too close to a destination, they get very much attached to the history. They know it almost too well. They don't have a good way of presenting it to visitors. 
in a way that that the visitor can understand and digest easily somehow. A lot of Czech tour guides who take visitors through Prague, they'll bury visitors. And I don't want to say anything bad about my colleagues in the Czech Republic, you know, the tour, because it's not an easy, it's not an easy balance and people are figuring out where it is and everybody makes basically the same mistakes. But they bury visitors in way too much detail. You know, this dynasty, that dynasty, this king, that queen, you know, the visitor doesn't really have the kind of background that is required to be able to understand this information and digest it easily. So it, it becomes very difficult. As a travel writer who's attached to the reader, you kind of know what stuff to leave out and what stuff to emphasize. I think that's a really important thing. So when I was in Minnesota and Wisconsin, I'm kind of on both sides of the ledger. Um, I think it's good that I didn't get to write about Ohio on this trip, you know, although that's that's what I really wanted to write about because I felt like I could really do something. But for me, going to Minnesota and Wisconsin was really learning like going to Romania and Bulgaria, in a sense. Like, you know, there were many things about those states, histories, cultures, attractions that I really didn't know going in. And I had to learn like my reader will learn. So I got to experience like he or she is going to experience it. Yeah, in some ways I can see it as being that right balance for you as a writer where you're familiar but not so familiar. So yes, you can still yes. make discoveries I, yourself. I, I think it was a great balance, actually. I, I found it kind of challenging, obviously. I don't know those states, and there's a lot of ground to cover, and there are a lot of things. I'm sure that, you know, what I wrote, I'm going to miss out a lot and probably mess up some. But, you know, I tried, and I think, you know, I got most of it. And at the same time, you know, as a person who did grow up in the Midwest, uh, I, you know, I kind of get all the culture. Nothing surprised me, really. You know, I kind of understand where people are coming from. You know, when people want to have an old fashioned before their dinner, I understand that, <laughs> uh, you know, when they want to have a fish fry on Friday night. Well, of course, we have that in Ohio, too. I get that. You know, so there were certain things that, that did translate to the upper Midwest from Ohio. And who is the imagined audience for this book? Foreigners oh, coming man. to the U.S. or is it U- U.S. Oh. readers? Uh, I was struggling with this so much because (laughs) so much about writing in general, and I'm sure for your podcast, too, is speaking to some reader, a specific reader or a listener, somebody out there that you are connecting with. And it's important to imagine and to be able to to visualize who that person is. And when I write about Eastern Europe or Central Europe, I know that I'm not writing for a person from Poland or from Romania or Bulgaria. I'm writing for somebody from the United States or from Britain, from Ireland, Australia, or and also possibly somebody from Germany or France or Italy. You know, in other words, somebody who's coming to the destination pretty cold. For this book, a lot of Americans are buying Lonely Planet titles, so I'm probably writing for Americans. You know, maybe I'm even writing for people from the Midwest. So it was a little bit intimidating thinking that some of these readers who buy this book are going to know this destination already very well. And then we also, for The Lonely Planet, um, we also have our kind of our our normal audience, which would be English speakers from outside the United States who would be traveling in the upper Midwest for whatever reason and would just naturally buy a Lonely Planet title because that's the guide that they use. Is it then bad to, to admit that one of my favorite things to do in the travel section of any bookstore is to go find the books about Philadelphia and judge their choices? Yes. Because I'm from there <laughs> and I want to I want to decide if I think that they know what they're talking about or not. Is that the worst thing to tell you right now? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, a lot of people are going to do that, I think. But, you know, isn't there an also kind of, I you know, maybe thrill is too strong a word, but to see your own home city through the eyes of a travel writer or a foreign travel writer, like what are they interested in? It's, it's a really different way of looking at it. Um, I was really interested to see 
how uh, our company, Lonely Planet, had covered Cleveland or Cincinnati or Columbus, because those three cities are in the book, in the Ohio section, you know? Mm -hmm. And they really do see them from a different perspective. I do it in like a slightly snarky, judgy way, because, yeah, Philadelphians, that's who we are, right? (laughs) Um, Right. but, But I also do it because they'll talk about some stuff from like, oh, I think I did that on that class trip when I was a kid, but I don't do that. But... You know right. what? The Constitution Center is one of the best museums of, of American history. I should right. go there, you know, and it's this pride that comes out that you're like, yeah, th- these people should be visiting my my place. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. You know, you have to find that kind of balance. I, and that was really challenging for me on this trip is to write for Americans and write for non-Americans, to write for residents and to write for visitors. It was very it's and still I'm still working on the book. I haven't finished it yet, but um but it's still, you know, it's it's challenging to find that with writing for me as an American writing about Europe is weirdly easier in some way, <laughs> conceptually easier. Well, OK. And then for you as a person, there's this other dynamic of being there and being in America for so long. I don't know how I don't know how much you visit from Prague, but, right. but that's a lot yeah. of time, especially just to be traveling. I know my trips home is always visiting people and, and catching up. And then I get culture shock, reverse culture shock. Um, so what was that like for you being back and being in these places for so long? Well, I, I don't know about all of your listeners, but when I first became an expat, there was this unacknowledged assumption, maybe unspoken assumption in my mind that the United States would never change, you know, that it would always be the same, that I would always come back to the same place that I left, that I would always immediately be able to understand and grasp everything that people were talking about doing, seeing, watching on television, buying in stores. But the fact is that, you know, the country changes a lot. And, you know, of course, it's basically the same. And, you know, it takes a little bit to adjust to. But there are a lot of things that just strike you as different and weird that you just don't know about. What kind of things? What got you? Really small things. I mean, (laughs) you know, really small things. Just the whole process of, 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 of a motel room and, you know, because as a travel writer, of course, you, you know, you get into a rhythm of always traveling from one hotel and motel to another every couple of days. So over the course of, you know, my research trip on this last one was about 35 days. So I must have checked in and out of hotels or motels 20 times. And just all of the uh, papers that you have to sign when you rent a motel room, you know, you have to put in your license number, you have to acknowledge an initial different policy things. Uh, when you get to the room, um, there's going to be a coffee machine there and you have to figure out whether this is a Keurig machine that uses a pod or you have to rip <laughs> out a filter, where you put the water down the back of the machine and why it's not working. Oh, okay. Well, this is where the on off button is. I mean, I know that sounds like the most ridiculous, you know, things that you can imagine, but, uh, you have to relearn these things. Oh, I think it's a little stuff that gets you exactly where it hurts, where you're like, am I just dumb? Like at this point, I just can't figure out how to make coffee now. Cool. Great. (laughs) Good for the self-esteem. Makes you real jazz to keep going on the adventure. This this is going to, you know, this is going to go into the, into the realm of cliche, but the most stressful part of an experience of returning to the States is dining out and then getting the bill and then not knowing whether I'm supposed to leave the money on the table, hand it to the waiter, or go and pay at the cashier. That's never <laughs> really written down. And then about leaving a tip, you know, do you tip 15% or 20%? Do you leave the money on the table? There are so many uh, small unspoken rules about just conducting normal life that people here just take for granted. And when you, as a you know fully functioning American person with perfect American English, don't really know what to do, it just seems strange. 
you know, in, in, in Prague, in the Czech Republic, they use Czech crown. And the Czech crown is for tipping. It's a really nice thing because you can usually just tip up to the nearest uh, paper bill and just leave it on the table and go. And um, I, I don't know if tipping up and just leaving the, you know, the, the highest number of bill on the table in, here in the U.S. is something people do or not. You know, I'm not really sure. Yeah, actually. And admitting that is so jarring somehow. <laughs> like, I feel like it's something I should know. I mean, I was born here. I grew up here. Yeah, right. Yeah, but that changes <laughs> yeah. too. I mean, I'm, I'm 27, but I remember being a kid and 15% was like, if, if they're quite good, right? And right. now mm-hmm. it seems that everyone's Very going good. automatically to 20. And that's just in yes. 20 years that I have decent memory about. So it just you makes know, the me feel lost. Culture kind of... <laughs> It, <laughs> it kind of brings me to um, to one of the topics that I kind of I you know I, it, it leads me naturally to a topic that I really want to talk to you about a little bit is as a as a person who spent a lot you know almost more than half of my life now in Europe the whole tipping thing in the United States it seems really strange to me and and not in a good way sometimes you know so in a sense I've kind of adopted this European attitude toward American tipping culture which is to say. Why don't we come up with a better system that people understand that's not so stressful, et cetera. But at the same time, you know, I don't want to become that expat who is really critical of the United States all the time or critical of American culture, you know. So I really hold myself back about those kind of criticisms because after a while you're going to surround yourself or you're going to find yourself surrounded by older expats who are really angry about their home country, whether that's, you know, the United States or some other country, that their host country, the country they live in, has got uh, sorted out a lot of things much better than their home country did, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I've, I've, you know, over the years, I've met my share of really angry American expats, and that's the person <laughs> that I least want to be in yes. my life. Oh, I'm so glad you said that because that's something I'm hyper conscious of to the point of paranoia, especially as it impacts my friends and family back home because I'm very conscious. Like, I don't want to be that obnoxious person who's like, yeah, well, everything's just so much better where I live in Europe. Right. Yeah. And right. and I don't do that. But I even I, I pick up on whenever someone refers to me living first off in Europe versus Germany. I'm like, to me, that's a difference. Like they're they're imagining this this European idea that that Americans sometimes have that's not my reality and I don't want them to right. to think that because it's not like I'm doing something amazing so I'm super conscious of that and it, I think it to a fault like I think I'm too worried about it but I don't want and I've heard some a lot of from a lot of expats who have been around there longer so I'd love to kind of pose this to you of that it can get harder over time to keep relating to the people that you were close with in the states be it or or in your home country in general be it friends or family because at some point your your experiences are just getting so much further apart. Um, yeah. So what has it been like for you over over this time? You know, it, it's it's in stages. You know, I think when you first move to Europe, and if you're young and your family, your parents, you know, your grandparents are still relatively young and everybody's doing well and stuff, there doesn't seem like there's that much pressure to always come home or always keep up the context because that you know that person's there going to be there. You don't really think about that. You know, you're too much more absorbed in your new country and your new life. And uh, and you're close enough to your old life that there isn't that much of a conflict, I think. Um, it's only after you get a little bit older and, you know, the people, you know, that you left behind back home get older. Of course, some people pass away and you start to realize that you are really marking time and your decision to leave those people in a different continent or you know, I mean, that sounds a little too dramatic, maybe, but <laughs> your decision, say, in, you know, to live a, apart from your home country, say, or, or something or spend time away, 
you know, starts to have real consequences. So I think when you get a bit older, it's much more important to build in routine visits, you know, come home, not maybe once every couple of years, but come home maybe two times in one year, if you can afford it. I, you know, I hate to say this, uh, maybe some of your listeners will disagree, but I think the onus really lies on the expat to keep it close in a sense. It doesn't sound fair, but that's at least how I interpret it. So, you know, my parents will visit me maybe once in three years or five years, but I come home twice in one year. And I don't see that as being uh, unfair or unjust. And I, I'm not counting who visits anyone more. But I just realize as the person who left the country, if I want to keep those contacts living, then I have to make an extra effort on my part. I don't know if that's the right decision or the wrong decision, but that's what works for me personally. How has it changed for you over the decades as the technology has changed? Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, when I first moved to Europe in the 1980s, you know, that was, of course, pre-internet. Yeah. And I would go, of course, we wrote a lot more letters. And, you know, I've just recently gone through my old box of letters and I realized how often we really did write each other, you know, like once a week with my brother, maybe you know, once or twice a week with my parents, you know, it was a completely different mentality, you know, paper letters. But there were also times when I would just go off the grid, travel, go to Greece or go to some other country and just for a few weeks and not even call, not even think about that person, you know, and I think that would be unthinkable now. Yeah. And we, and we used to schedule a, a, a call, a long distance call with my parents. I think back in the day, it was every two weeks, probably. So once in two weeks, twice a month, and that would be a half an hour or an hour or something like that at long distance rates, which, you know, were pretty prohibitively expensive, at least in the earlier years. And now our calls are much more sporadic. They can be shorter or longer. I don't think we call more often than we used to or talk more often, but in just in different ways, in different intervals. And of course, we text more. And um, I, I think, again, I don't want to sound like a, uh, an older grumpy expat, <laughs> but I think in a sense, it was almost better before the technology, you know, felt more authentic. I'm not, not, that's not the right word. It maybe felt like the connection was more personal. I, I'm, yeah. I'm not sure what the right word is. I'm really interested in you saying that, though, because I've one that's kind of been my hypothesis in my head this whole time is like it's it is better and it's also worse. And this it's like almost a fake level of, of being in touch where I can send a picture of the bakery I go to every day, for example, that that my parents then can, can visualize that or my friends can have an idea of my routine, you know, and that, and that makes you feel closer. Yeah. But then at the same time, at some point, it's like, well, then how surface level is that? And, and are we then taking the time to, to sit down and spend an hour writing a letter or spend 30 minutes on the phone, mm-hmm. having that quality right. versus just these like sort of, again, these updates, these check-ins? Right. Yeah. Oh, hard to say. I, I really don't know that. You know, it's it's funny, though, also, but when you first move abroad, all your impressions about living abroad are so fresh and so different that you want to share them. And taking a photograph of the bakery that you buy your bread is kind of interesting, you know, to you, you know, because it's also strange and different and you share it. But when you've lived in a place for, you know, like I have for 10 years or 20 years in Prague, I, I don't very rarely send my parents a picture of my bakery in Prague or something because it doesn't interest me at all. You know, somehow <laughs> it's the most ordinary place in the world, you know, I mean, so the freshness of moving abroad dissipates over time. You know, of course, expats will experience that. It just becomes any other place to live, you know, and maybe that uh, enthusiasm of sharing all these differences kind of dies off too a little bit as it becomes more familiar. 
Well, we're getting towards the end, but I want to give you a chance. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you were hoping that we would get to? Yeah, I think um, for expats who are just embarking on this journey or are just a couple of years into it, you have to really think about the future and about how long you want to spend outside your country and with the knowledge that your environment really does change you. You know, it changes your mentality. It changes the way you think and see things. Um, it has a, an effect on you that you don't even really, you can't even really imagine. So, you know, I, I guess I'm saying is you have to be careful about where you choose to live or spend your time because it will impact, you know, the way that you develop as a person and have big, have an effect on you. And I didn't really think about that too much. And I don't even think I would change too much if I realized that. But, you know, I do see things in ways that reflect the part of Europe that I live in. You know, I can't help it. And so you just have to realize that uh, being an expat is not just about spending, a, you know, some time abroad and, and learning some new things. It's actually about becoming the person of the home country that you choose to live in a little bit. So you're becoming a German partly, you know, and I'm becoming a Czech partly in a way, in slow ways. So it's something to worth considering. And that's that's really the message that I wanted to talk to you about in this in this podcast. That was that was that was what I was really hoping that we would get to. So thank you. That's brilliant. Wonderful last words. With that, we're going to round the corner and head to home with our ending segment, which is called okay. Zack, Zack, Zack. So it's a okay. rapid fire question round. I'm going to ask oh. you three questions that you're going to answer without thinking it, overthinking it. Just oh dear. go with your gut. Oh my God. Yeah. Okay. 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 <laughs> you ready? Okay. What was the most satisfying food that you ate on this trip? Fish tacos. Uh, what is one place in Central Europe that we should all be visiting? Hmm. How about Slovenia? Oh, and what is your favorite name of any city or town? Brno, B-R-N-O. Impossible really to say, you know, impossible to envision how it would spell and also why ever name a a city Brno, B-R-N-O. You know, you you probably don't realize that um, in the Czech Republic that people from Brno and Prague have a little bit of a rivalry, so to speak. You know, Praguers don't really care too much about Brno, but Brno seems to care a lot about Prague. So (laughs) maybe that's... (laughs) That's awesome. All right. Well, before we head out, do you want to tell people where they can find you online? Well, uh, if you Google my name, Mark Baker, and the the word Prague, where I live, then all kinds of uh, links will pop up. But the main one to find me is my blog which is www.markbakerprog.com. And you'll see all my articles there, including that one on Youngstown that helped land that gig to Minnesota and Wisconsin that I just finished. Very good. Thank thank you you. so much for coming on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks again to Mark for coming on the show. Twitter is actually how Mark and I got connected. And I got to say, he's pretty entertaining on Twitter. So definitely give him a follow. While you're at it, you can also follow the Expat Cast on Twitter, though I fully admit that we are less entertaining than Mark. Um, and you can also follow the Expat Cast on Instagram, too. Both are at the Expat Cast. Thank you, as always, to Gordon Eisenach, my partner in podcasting and in life, and to Amy Lungi Art for the logo, as well as to Sidehug for the theme music. A final thank you to you, the listener, for tuning in this week. And as always, I'd love to hear your feedback in the form of social media or email or sharing the episode with a friend or leaving us a rating and or review on apple podcasts or your podcast app of choice that is a huge help to the show i really appreciate every single one next week we'll be back in your feeds with an episode with a german woman living in india she and i have 
some pretty cool stories of how we got connected. Until then, have a great week. And if it's as hot as it is here where you are, stay cool. Find a good cave to hide out in.